0: Now, few who witnessed him streaking down the backstretch at the Belmont Stakes on June 9, 1973, adorned in distinctive blue and white checked silks and 31 lengths away from his nearest competitor will ever forget the scene. Secretariat, the Great Red Stallion, who with that victory became the first horse to win the Triple Crown in a quarter decade, was born on March 30th, 1970, at the Meadow, a historic farm in Caroline County. In this, he was part of a great tradition of horse breeding and racing in Caroline and in Virginia that dates back to the colonial period. The new book, Secretariat's Meadow, celebrates the farm, the family, especially Chris Chenery and his daughter Penny, and Secretariat. The story is told by Penny's daughter, Kate Chenery-Tweedy, with the assistance of her co-author, Leanne Layden. More than 300 photographs many of which have never been seen, offer a magnificent visual journey to complement this special story of one of America's greatest sports moments and one of the most famous Virginians of the 20th century. And this is certainly a fitting subject for a banner lecture. After all, how many natives of the old dominion can claim to have been simultaneously on the covers of Time, Newsweek, and Sports Illustrated, (laughs) have been honored on a United States Postal Service stamp, and have been the subject of a Walt Disney feature film? Not many, I'd wager. Well, today we're extremely fortunate to have with us Kate Tweedy, who spent three years researching the remarkable story of Secretariat, her grandfather and mother, and the place, The Meadow. A graduate of the University of Texas and of Berkeley, she's an erstwhile lawyer, now teacher, editor, author, and family historian. Kate was joined in the writing of Secretariat's Meadow by co-author Leanne Layton, who is the author of four books of her own on regional history, including the award-winning The State Fair of Virginia, More Than a Midway. Kate and Leanne will be signing books after the lecture today, but when you buy the book, read it, and realize that it would make a great gift for the equine enthusiast in your life, you'll want to come back when Kate and Leanne will be signing again at the members' preview of the annual Museum Stores of Richmond Holiday Shoppers Fair, which coincidentally will be here at the VHS. They will be signing on the evening of November 4th, so put that down on your calendars. I know that was pretty shamelessly commercial of me to say that, but we've got to sell books around here. So if you would please join me in a warm welcome for the only woman I know who can claim that Diane Lane has played her mother, Kate Tweedy. (laughs)
1: Thank you so much. I cannot tell you how pleased I am to be here. <clears throat> I, um, this city is uh, the, where my grandfather was born. Um, it's where my colleagues live. It's also where um, I spent a wonderful summer in 2007 researching for this book. And I just can't tell you how how exciting it was for me to be in Richmond. I just totally fell in love with the, the city and uh, I loved researching the Virginia roots of my family. Um, of course, this is also the the birthplace of Virginia's greatest equine son and as, as uh, you know we are very, very happy to have been able to bring out a book that explores not only the history of the, the horse but also the meadow where he was born um, and my grandfather's stable, uh, Meadow Stables. He. Um, I started the book to sort of explain to myself and integrate uh, this amazing event of my childhood. I was 19, I was twenty in 1973, um, with my, sort of my adult uh, view of life, and in the process um, to explore and explain how Secretary came to our family. Uh, you know, it's like getting a, having a thunderbolt, a good thunderbolt, uh, hit your family and. Um, what we discovered was that it was rooted in the land, and the history, and the politics, and the people of this state. And I think we also discovered um, that it takes a village to raise a, a champion. And so we discovered that all the people who worked at the meadow, the, the grooms, many of whom um, had descended from families that had worked the land uh, in, under the bondage of slavery. Um, Th- who had, but who then worked for my grandfather in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, helped create a, really a magical place in Caroline County where uh, this great thoroughbred could have been born and raised and uh, able to bring his uh, marvelous talents to their highest level. Uh, before we go on, I would like to acknowledge quickly um, the, the people who helped uh, helped me along this journey and who, uh, without whom the book would never have been written and certainly not as well as it was done. First of all, uh, our publisher, Wayne Dementi. Wayne, would you stand? He's right down in front here. Um, and then last but, uh, uh, not last, but I was going to say, no less important was my colleague, Leanne Laden, my co-author. Would you please stand? She and I. We wrote and rewrote every word in this book together, <laughs> and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. Um, next, our editor, Monica Rumsey. Are you here today, Monica? She uh, pr- proofed it and edited it and made it as um, uh, clean as it is <laughs> of uh, errors. Um, but but the probably the most important person to the visual impact of the book, which many people have commented on is Jane Hushin, who is our designer, a graphic designer of great talent, and I hope she's here. She's not standing up or waving. Oh, there she is. Okay. Yay, Jane. And I would also like to thank um, Nelson Langford and, and Paul Good for having me here. It's, it's really a pleasure. Okay. We're going to start with a very quick clip Uh, Most of you know all about Secretariat, but for those who don't, here's a quick clip from the life and times of Secretariat to remind you of his achievements.
2: He was always bigger than life, the king of the sport of kings, Secretariat. The most famous thoroughbred of our time. Maybe the best there ever was. His racing career spanned just 16 months from July of 1972 until near the end of October 1973. But his impact on the sport has transcended time. On nine different racetracks, on dirt and grass, he made 21 starts with 16 firsts, 3 seconds, a third, and a fourth with earnings of $1,316,808. It has been said by experienced horsemen that physically and mentally, Secretariat was the closest there has ever been to the perfect racehorse. The massive chestnut with three white stockings, a star, and a narrow strip stood 16 hands, one and a half inches, and weighed over 1,100 pounds. His girth was so immense at 76 inches that he needed a custom-made saddle girth. Tests indicated his heart weighed from 14 to 17 pounds, the largest among any equine champions examined, and his stride measured an amazing 25 feet. In his two-year career, he won five year-end Eclipse Awards. Champion two-year-old Colt, champion three-year-old Colt, champion turf horse and horse of the year in 1972 and again in 1973 but his legendary status came not from titles nor track records but from three races in the spring of 1973 when he became the sports first triple crown winner in a quarter of a century this then is his story as we take you from the beginning to the end of the life and times of Secretariat an American racing legend.
1: Well, we're not going to go over the life and times of Secretariat. Um, the movie does a marvelous job of that, and there are some other books that do. What we're going to do is talk about where he came from, and the first place I, we had to go to 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 investigate that was The Meadow. The Meadow was Granddaddy's farm in Caroline County, um, about 2,600 acres. Uh, He bought it in 1936, but its history is much older than that. The meadow was first owned. uh, The first grant was 1674 to a group of speculators who had imported settlers. Um, They'd never occupied it, which was what you needed to do to assert title or to perfect title. Um, So John Carter was able to buy it for a very small amount of money in 1724. He was the eldest son of uh, King Carter, um, the richest, second richest man in the American colonies. Um, Well, this is, um, anyway, John Carter um, put it together with a number of other uh, tracts of land to form the North Wales plantation 10,000 acres um, in the southwest corner of Caroline County. The meadow was the northernmost portion. Uh, it passed to Charles Carter of Shirley Plantation in 1742. Um, and he had uh, about 11, I think, tobacco plantations. <laughs> Makes me nervous to make these assertions in front of this crowd because I know there are so many historians here who will say, no, it was eight. But I'm not sure which it was. <laughs> it was eight or 11, but anyway, a large number. and. Um, We can't find that any family lived there, but a house was built. We think an overseer's house was built uh, on the meadow at that time. And um, uh, then it passed to Charles Carter. Oh, I already said that. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Sold in 1805 to Dr. Um, Charles Dabney Morris of Taylor's Creek in Hanover County, a young doctor just starting out. And he bought it to um, uh, start his family with... uh, young Emily Taylor. Now, I was trying, I spent this morning trying to put up our family tree so this wouldn't be too confusing, um, but I couldn't manage to do it. Anyway, Emily Taylor, the Taylors were who the Chenerys married and descended from, and we descended from both sides of the Taylors, and there was one family in Hanover County, Edmund and Anne Day Taylor, who had 11 children, and we are descended from uh, three of those siblings. Anyway, one of them married Charles Morris of the Meadow. Um, I hope you can see well. The meadow, this is um, a map of uh, the North Anna Battle, um, which, oh no, this is, I'm sorry, this is the wilderness, from, from the wilderness d- down to Richmond to Cold Harbor. We were, um, the meadow was right, excuse me. Um, the reason I put this up, and I'm sorry it's, it's a little hard to see, is be- to show that um, the um, the Battle of North Anna, which was a stalemate in May of 1864, raged for three days. Uh, the uh, Confederates were on the south side of the North Anna. The um, uh, Federals were on the north. The f- at s- they tried to get over the river, and the course the Confederates were trying to defend the river as best they could. It was an important junction of two railroads. Um, the Chesapeake and, uh, and Ohio and the um, Virginia Central, and they, they ended up um, repulsing the North, but everybody just withdrew and decided to fight another day. But when they withdrew, the North, uh, the Northern soldiers went right along the northern bank of uh, the North Anna, which is where the meadow was. So they went right through the meadow and um there wasn't there wasn't actual bloodshed on the meadow but they they raided the house and they and there were these um sort of treasured stories passed down in the family about how uh the morris ladies stood their ground and and watched while the yankee thieves stole their silver and uh, the 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 best part of the silver was saved either by by being buried in the well or in the garden you know we have two different versions um But it was a traumatic moment, of course, for the family, and everything was taken. Um, The house stood, however. It was not burned. Um, um, Before the Civil War, however, I guess that slide, I should have moved that slide to another spot. But before the the Civil War, um, I had a great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, James Gunn Chenery, who moved from Massachusetts. Down to Richmond in 1842, he had had a series of deaths in his family and was, I think, starting uh, looking for a new life. And he came down with with a colleague to open a dry goods store, which uh, was called Childs and Chenery and operated till 1866. Uh, He did well with it. It was um, at one point it was on the corner, the southeast corner of Sixth and Broad, um, right near where Miller and Rhodes later was. he uh, he lodged at, uh, uh, with a uh, good family, um, Mary Tompkins, who was a uh, widow of uh, Christopher Tompkins, who had fought in the Revolutionary War. Um, James boarded there and uh, met and married, fell in love with her daughter, Emily Tompkins. And Mary Tompkins was a sister of Emily Taylor of the Meadow. So there, that's the link to the Meadow, is through these Taylors, these sisters, who, one who had married a Tompkins, one who had married a Morris. Um, James Gunn Chenery ended up um, having two sons, uh, two uh, two children. One a son, James Hollis Chennery, uh, who was my great grandfather. <clears throat> Through the war, he uh, he adopted his, the politics of his of his new state, uh, enlisted in the the um, battalion for that was. To protect Richmond, it, when all the regular troops left, and ended up, um, he uh, trained all throughout the war. But they never actually saw service except for the night when uh, the the Confederate when the Confederacy fled Richmond and Richmond burned. He was off attending uh, tri- with his battalion protecting the city, and he left his young son, who was only 14 at the time, James Hollis Chennery, with a shotgun to defend his. A dry goods store and, and the story, it was always passed down, that Jimmy spent the night with a shotgun on the counter of the dry goods store fending off looters. And, and if you, any of you have read Nelson Langford's excellent book about the burning of Richmond, um, you will know, and of course you probably know from other sources too, the incredible chaos that went on that night. But that was a very formative experience in my great-grandfather's life. Um, uh, James Gunn, the s- senior, um, survived the war. They all survived the war, but he went bankrupt in no time and i uh, f- I found the records of his bankruptcy. He owed um, about fifty five thousand to creditors all over the nation, including Lord and Taylor of New York but he um, he had only about twelve thousand in receivables, and all the people uh, many many of the names who owed him money were family and friends and I, through research, I could tell that, so he evidently carried everybody through the war on credit and p- make sure they had clothes, which was um, what you did during the, the siege and famine um, in Richmond. And um, went, so he be- went bankrupt a year after the war ended and then died of typhoid um, one month later. That left James Hollis Chennery, who was my great grandfather. Um, here's a picture of him as a young man on the left. Um, he had three families to support, the ladies at the meadow, Um, all of their men had died, and there were three ladies at the meadow who had no source of support, including the original Emily uh, Taylor Morris, a a a daughter-in-law and a a granddaughter, Um, and then three uh, uh, elderly uncles who were morally opposed to labor. They were not prepared to adjust. (laughs) They didn't like the idea of adjusting to the new realities after the war, and um, so they were worthless, and then... um, (laughs) And then my great grandfather's uh, stepmother and th- and three young siblings. So he had to support all these people on a clerk's salary, and he ended up um, working in a, a in a shoe store. Oh, no, I'll get back to that. Sorry. He ended up working in a shoe store, and I have a picture of that on another slide um, in Richmond. Um, most of his life, and he would lose jobs and get jobs and lose jobs and get jobs. But he always remained a a store clerk. This was a man who who had studied Latin, had hoped to go to London to to, uh, read law. He was very intellectual and very uh, proud and not suited for sales. In fact, he was a terrible salesman. And the family really suffered. The picture on the right shows him as an older man in about 1917 with his um, daughter Blanche. He, he spent the first 30 years of his life supporting uh, the various members of his family, and by 1882, he finally decided he could marry. Well, he married a cousin, Ida Burnley Taylor, um, who had been born uh, right after the Battle of Chancellorsville in Culpeper County. Um, and as um, her father wrote, I found his records in, uh, in his Civil War file, he wrote to say that his wife and, and new babies, were um, in federal territory that was constantly being overrun both by the north and the south, and um, that he couldn't. He needed to go and protect them and take care of them, and also he had tuberculosis, so he was relieved. Um, but then he ended up coming back and working in Richmond during the war um, as a pharmacist at uh, Chimborazo Hospital. Um, anyway, so Ida was born in a world of crisis, and of course, after the war, no one had anything. Her 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 grandparents had been wealthy, her father had been wealthy, and then there was nothing. So they ended up moving to Washington. He was a postal. Uh, he ran a small post office. She went to school, um, but they were very poor. And um, she ended up marrying uh, Jimmy Chenery, James Hollis Chenery. Uh, because he was bright, and they were both very pious, and they both loved literature and loved books, and had no very little formal education, but had were self were self-educated and very proud of their ancestry. Um, the picture on the right is where uh, James Chenery James Hollis Chenery worked. Whoop, skip back. Uh, Breeden and Fox at 109 West Broad. Um, <clears throat> The picture on the left is the Chenery family at the meadow. Um, the meadow remained sort of the one place in the family, that, the piece of land that remained in the family, even though they had very little. Um, you'll see a man on a horse. That's my great grandfather, James Hollis Chenery, and his one-year-old son, Christopher Chenery, my grandfather. Uh, we think the lady standing might be Ida, but we're not sure. Um, Ida and Jimmy had a tough life. They immediately had four children uh, and a daughter. Um, From uh, left to right, that's um, Charles Morris, uh, Alan Chenery. My grandfather is the third one on the step with a white shirt. Uh, That's Christopher Chenery Tweedy. To his right is um, Bill Chenery, and the baby is Blanche in uh, Ida and Jimmy's lap. They're sitting on the steps of the meadow. Um, They started out their married life at the meadow living in the office. Their first child, uh, died and was born there and then uh, they moved to Richmond. All this while um, Jimmy's working in Richmond taking the accommodation train in um, to, um, to Richmond and then commuting back to the Meadow. Uh, eventually they moved to Richmond um, where Ida found it, they lived at 312 uh, West Grace, um, found it very hard to um, maintain these th- four rowdy boys in a, in a boarding house with no yard and there were no real parks then So I had a scheme to try to get them out to Ashland where there would would be safer, there would be uh, a college the boys could go to and live at home. The the boys ended up, she ended up doing that. She had a sister who had married well and and borrowed some money from them, built a house in in Ashland and sent the boys to to Randolph-Macon. The boys supported each other through college and um, ended up, granddaddy uh, ended up graduating from Washington and Lee and um, with an engineering degree. And a Phi Beta Kappa Key, which is his most valued possession um, in his early years, and then went to Alaska engineering uh, and surveying railroad routes. He, was, uh, he loved the outdoors, he loved horses more than anything, and, and um, he, he just wanted to explore the world. He was a very vigorous, bright man, very practical, not scholarly, but perfectly bright and able to. Um, uh, he had a, a good sense of the big picture and he loved solving problems. He married Helen Bates of Portland, Oregon. Her family thought this brash young engineer uh, from Virginia with no name was, was not suitable for her. So that was a big struggle. Um, she eventually uh, uh, left her family and, and went with him back east. When she got to, oh, I'll go back. But when she got to Oregon, whoops, sorry. Uh, oh, it's, sorry, okay. I've given this speech many times, but I have to tell you, doing it in front of you is um, feels like, I just feel like it's, um, this is the audience that I really want to tell this story to and I don't have enough time and so I'm very nervous. Anyway, forgive me for jumping around. Um, Anyway, my great, uh, my Ida, the the formidable woman who pushed the the four boys to go to college, she didn't like uh, Helen when she came and said, I thought they only had barmaids in Oregon. And so, of course, Helen, who had to spend the uh, years of World War I with her mother-in-law in Ashland, that was a very tough time. She had her first two kids there. My uncle and aunt were both born in Ashland, and then uh, granddaddy came back from the war and uh, took his small family to New York. Uh, he knew he would have no peace as long as his feisty wife and uh, domineering mother were under the same roof. So in New York, um, he realized that a consulting engineer wouldn't make much money, and he discovered a talent for finance. He loved numbers, and so he uh, did a lot of research and and worked with uh, George Orstrom, who was a um, venture capitalist here in in Virginia, and they bought up a number of water utilities around the country, formed the Water Service Corporation. Then eventually, uh, um, they sold that and uh, found Southern Natural Gas, which was... Uh, strictly gas, but uh, mostly small southern utilities. Eventually, he also founded, he uh, bought the Danziger Oil Company, formed the first offshore production corp, and um, continued to build his, uh, a, a financial um, a utilities uh, uh, conglomerate, and that's how he made his money. Um but even though he was in New York he always loved Virginia and and he told his secretary he said if anybody comes in here saying chenery, which is how the name is normally pronounced here uh, he said let them in right away cuz they're from Virginia and I want to see them <laughs> He was never happier than on a horse this is him um uh he he did he played polo he hunted he it, The family did not do anything except ride, as a family. So all three kids had to learn to ride. Um, He had a heart attack in 1936, and and, uh, this extremely vigorous man, probably ADD, just never sat still, um, had to slow down. And he was told to give up polo and hunting. But so what would he do? And uh, a good friend, of a cousin, and also his cardiologist, Hill Carter, Dr. Hill Carter of Ashland, Suggested that he he come back to Virginia and breed thoroughbreds, and and um, he went back. And his um, he had heard he had as a child he had walked the seven miles from Ashland to um, up to Doswell to exercise a cousin's thoroughbreds, and so he had. And this cousin was Bernard Doswell was the last was the third generation of a famous racing family, the Doswells, uh, whose farm Bullfield was right across the river from the Meadow in Hanover County. And he had heard all these great stories, and so that was sort of a symbol for him of the glory of the um, of the past. And his parents had suffered terribly in in raising those five children. And his sister, who wrote a who's a novelist later, Blanche Perrin, and wrote Born to Race, um, was uh, later wrote a m- memoir, and she said that they literally prayed for their daily bread. They really weren't always sure where it would be coming from. This impacted my grandfather greatly. So his two greatest goals were to make money and to restore eminence to the Chenery Taylor family. So once he'd made his money and had his heart attack, it was the perfect thing to come back to Virginia, buy back the meadow, which had been sold out of the family in 1912, restore it, and establish a racing stable. So he took the 1905 house and stripped it down, as you can see. This is the house under. 1805, sorry, Uh, stripped it down and here he is surveying. He loved surveying, he loved projects, he loved getting in there and, and, you know, uh, uh, fixing the soil, adding to it, uh, amending it because the soil was pretty exhausted. And this was the the house um, when it was finished. He added the wing on the left, the uh, oldest parts were the center part and the part on the right. Um, And then he established, um, he he erected barns, a training track, an indoor training track, which is this picture you can see on the bottom. It was a three-eighths mile indoor track for inclement weather. He had a mile track on the outside, Uh, all these wonderful barns. And this is one of the very early um, mango hick. He named a lot of his horses after Virginia um, uh, features. Uh, on the right, upper l- right, you can see down into the cove, there was a whole section of the farm that was uh, had been underwater for many years. It had been first diked in the 1820s, um, but during the Civil War, the dike f- um, uh, burst, and that area was flooded until 1936. So Grandaddy rebuilt the dike, made it much higher, drained the soil, took uh, seven years to drain the cove, and turned it into a wonderful Pasture, and uh, that was a great engineering project, which of course he loved. Um, then he began to assemble uh, brood mares, which formed the basis of his of his stable. He believed that mares were as important as sires, most people focused on who was the sire. He found he bought a number of inexpensive mares who um, later produced some of the greatest runners um, of last century and this coming century Hildeen, imperatrice Iberia and then something royal, something royal who was secretary at Dam? Here's uh, the cove, uh, Broodmare's grazing in the cove. This was Granddaddy's favorite picture of the meadow, and um, you can see the dike in the back that keeps out the North Anna River. Uh, he had early success in 1998. I'm sorry, 1950. He had Hill Prince, who was horse of the year. Uh, second in the Derby, Granddaddy's had always hoped to breed, uh, breed the best horse he could, but also to win the derby. He had twin goals. He had three children. Um, Hollis was the oldest. He's on the, um, on the horse on the right. And then in the middle is my mother, Penny. And then Miggy is the sister on the left, Margaret. Um, Penny was, a, uh, was supposed to be a boy. She was a daddy's girl. She adored her father, rode as vigorously as he did. And if he went out and, and kicked dirt with the farmers, so did she. Eventually, she um, grew up, had to, she attended Smith College where her, um, many of our family members went and then traveled with the Red Cross to Europe in 1945. That's her in Germany on the Jeep. Um, Then uh, her father told her that she needed to develop some skills or if the Bolsheviks invaded, they would shoot her first. (laughs) Because she was worthless. She had no uh, talents to offer. So she started an MBA at Columbia. And um, in 1947, she was one of 20 women in a class of 800. Um, a, a young law student caught her eye, Jack Tweedy. When he proposed, uh, he uh, he suggested they move to Denver, and they both thought, "Well, it'd be good to get away from our families." He was from a New Jersey family, um, so she ended up quitting school. She was really uh, she was three months short of her MBA, and her father said, her parents said. Gee, what do you need that degree for? You're, you're getting married, so you know, give it up. So she did, and moved uh, to Colorado. And here she is, and, and, and the left is her in Colorado, and she really was an outdoors person and loved being out there. Here she is pregnant with one of us at a campsite, um, and uh, grand- uh, dad loved camping and fishing and hunting. She loved theater, um, you know, museums and art and music, but, um, but they found a way to make it work. Um, she was a suburban housewife for, for uh, 20 years. Uh, here she is, uh, the middle picture is her at the Arapaho hunt in Denver, they hunted coyotes, not foxes. Um, that's uh, us, my sisters on the left, my, youngest, uh, my sister Sarah, youngest brother Chris, and I'm the one cuddling next to mom. I'm the middle, I'm the second daughter, we had four siblings. Uh, this bottom picture is 1967, mom at the bottom, me uh, uh, on the upper left, dad, brother Chris, youngest brother John, and Sarah down next to mom. Um, she, was a mem- she was on the board of Meadow Stud. Granddaddy made sure that uh, she knew something about it, but she didn't know much about racing. But we would go to races. That's my sister and me and mom next to Sirian C, who was a brother of secretariat, full brother. Um, and... Um, And then mom in the other picture showing mom with her parents. She went to many races, commuting from Denver, but she didn't have any real responsibility. Granddaddy was a very much a um, uh, uh, he managed everything. He he ran everything, and you could um, listen, and you could watch, and you could observe, but you couldn't really participate. Um, But Grandmother, got, grandmother died in November of 1967 and, and granddaddy had been getting more and more forgetful and more and more um, confused and finally they realized that mom had to take over the stable in 1967. This is the picture of her first, the first win and when she was in charge of the stable with her sister and her brother, uh, neither of them wanted anything to do with it. He was an economist at Harvard and uh, was happy there. Um, Miggy lived in Arizona, didn't really want anything to do with um, uh, the horses, so mom took it over. And this is a picture of her receiving a trophy from Mrs. Ogden Phipps, um, and she uh, her first trophy that she received. And she was so sort of ignorant to the ways of racing, she said, oh, what do I do with the trophy? Do I take it back to my box? And Mrs. Phipps said, no, dear, they'll send it to you. she did as if you see the movie you 'll see that uh, there was a lot of struggle between the siblings over what should happen. Penny wanted to keep racing as long as Granddaddy was alive, and she wanted to do it for him and because she felt that there was there was still hope for the horses and and she also had really not been happy as a housewife she needed a she had needed to be in a uh, challenging business from the word go. She's a loving mother, but just not comfortable in the role of housewife. And she still has a a, a um, dish towel that says, I understand the concept of, of cooking and cleaning, but just not how is it, as it applies to me. <laughs> and that was pretty much her philosophy. Um, so when this opportunity came along, she was thrilled. And her brother and sister kept saying, well, the farms in the bl- in the red if you don't start making money, we're going to sell everything and put it in the stock market because you're the only one having fun here, which was true. Um, but so Riva Ridge came along just in the nick of time. He was our uh, a foal of 1969, fall of 71, he started winning races. He was a, a gawky, uh, a tall, skinny horse um, with flop ears, but he ran like a deer. And uh, so very much a contrast to his later stablemate who was so gorgeous. Um, But Reva came along in 71 and started winning and and the complaints stopped from her siblings and then 1972 he he won the Kentucky Derby. This was a huge huge moment and of course Disney left it out of the movie and the reason they did, they told us for one it's not a documentary, but for two you can't have two great arcs of triumph in the same story, you know. (laughs) So Reva Ridge got completely cut out but he really saved the farm and without him, I don't know that we would have, uh, we might have folded. Secretary might have been born, but would he have been trained and raised by the same people? Would his great talent come to the fore the way it did? And would he have had the, the wonderful combination of trainer and writer that he had? No one will know, but we wouldn't have had him. Um, in any case, Reva fulfilled Granddaddy's dream, and he was at this point in the hospital, had been in the hospital for about five years really not speaking much, not recognizing people, but the nurse had the TV on, and everybody had warned her, oh, Reva's running in the derby, and so watch it. So she had it on, and she was feeding him dinner, and just as the race ended, she turned to him and said, Mr. Chenery, Mr. Chenery, your horse just won the Kentucky Derby, and um, granddaddy's hand fluttered up, and tears came down his cheeks, and that's how we know he knew. You know, he didn't say anything, but um, that was, that was really the crowning moment for, for Mom. And, you know, and, and Howard Gentry, our farm manager, who was um, uh, from Charlottesville and had a kind of a thick accent, he was saying, I feel so sorry for Mrs. Chenry because she's had all this excitement with Reva and, and next year she'll have nothing. <laughs> and, of course, nothing was secretariat. So now what we're going to do is we're going to watch... His three greatest races. Uh, I won't. Uh, we're running out of time, so we're going to do this quickly. Um, the first, the Derby, then the Preakness, then the Belmont. Oh. Come on, baby. No. Oh, there it is. Okay. I just had to get the the turn on button. Under off,
3: for the lead. On the inside, that's Angle Light for the lead. On the outside, Shecky Green, Royal and Regal. Then on the rail, it's Restless Jet, followed by our native. Up on the outside is Gold Bag. They're by the stands for the first time. Jackie Green is showing the way by a length and a half, Royal and Regal. Now being moved to the inside, looking for room. Gold Bag is up on the outside. Then on the rail, it's Angle Light, followed by Sham, our native, Restless Jet. It's my gallant, then Forgo. On the outside, Navo, followed by Secretariat, Warbox, and finally, Twice a Prince.
1: Secretary, it's off the They're screen for a big the part turn. of this. The Very worrisome.
3: Leading by two and a half legs. Goldbag is second by ahead. Cham now third on the outside by two lengths. Royal and Regal fourth. Two lengths then back to angle light in uh, fifth. The here he comes. Made a He's on right there. now sixth. Then it's restless jet. Our native beginning to move up. Navajo, four go and Warbucks beginning to move up. Followed by Mike Gallup and twice a prince. They're into the turn and bunching for the lead with Shecky Green, still the leader by a half a length. On the outside and challenging is Sham, and he's now got a head in front. Now Shecky Green responds to the challenge, and those two are heads apart. Royal and Regal is third and holding on. Goldbag drops back. Secretariat is fourth and moving up on the outside and is now third and moving at the leaders as they come for the head of the stretch. They're at the head of the stretch, and Sham is the leader. He leads it by a length. Secretariat is in the center of the racetrack and driving. Shecky Green now drops back. Coming on a bit is Forgo, our native on the outside. Now and then in the stretch, it's Secretariat, Secretariat on the outside to take the lead, Sham holding in second, it's Secretariat moving away, he has it by two and a half, Sham then on the outside, our native, at the wire it's going to be Secretariat, he wins it by two lengths, Sham was second, our native third by an end, is goals for the bestless Jet is fifth, and it looked like Navajo might have gotten up for six.
1: He ran every furlong, which is an eighth of a mile, faster than the previous one. He set a record that still stands for the derby, 159 and 2 fifths. And Sham, the second place horse, ran the second fastest derby ever. And of course, that's a famous line from the movie now. but it was astonishing. Everybody had really hoped he would do it. And the tension, of course, arose from the fact that he'd lost the wood, which was the prep race, the wood memorial in New York, uh, two weeks earlier. And people were saying his sire, Bold Ruler, could not produce um, a long distance runner. They had early speed, but no stamina. And, But of course, granddaddy had specifically bred his um, mares um, to Bold Ruler. And his mares were out of Prince Quillo, uh, a, 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 a known um, a, a horse who had great stamina. So his theory was always to make sure you had a a, a, uh, a heavy dose of stamina and and what they call bone, solid bone, in the um, in the in the cross in the pedigree, um, and in this case it paid off, which was truly wonderful. Okay, this is the this is the Preakness. The Preakness is a um, is in Maryland. It's uh, not as well known a race, but it has it has kind of tighter turns. The track is um, uh, different shape than uh, Kentucky, and it and it's just two weeks later. So it demands a, a high level of training and also a different sort of skill in, in running. is hiding from me there we go secretariat bobs his
3: head we're still looking and they're up for the early lead that deadly dream on the outside of coletage then it's also torsion on the outside they're coming by us it's a coli taj getting it knees they're moving away by about two and a half as they pass the stands settling into second torsion sham has good position third on the rail it's another three lengths back
1: deadly dream. now watch it this and first turn
3: secretariat is last again as they move into the first turn they're into the A coli taj has it by two lengths Torsion second by a length and then Sham third. Sham under an easy hold right now. But here comes Secretariat. He's moving fast and he's going to the outside. He's going for the lead, and it's right now he's looking for it. Roddy turcott sends him alongside Ecoletage. Here we have it. A is the leader, but Sham, rather, Secretariat is right alongside. Then still further back. That is Sham now going to the outside in third. Here comes Sham. We're moving down the back stretch. Secretariat Sham. holding it by a length and a half. Here comes Sham second on the outside now. Now it's Secretariat the leader by a length and a half with Sham moving into second, and it looks like Ecole Taj has had it, dropping back in third. Coming on in fourth is our native, and he's pretty close. Torsion fifth, and a trailer way back is Deadly Dream. They're on the turn. Here's the race, folks. Secretariat trying to hold it, and Sham is driving to get him. These two are beginning to open a few lengths as our native settles into third, and he has about three lengths on Ecole Taj. Head of the stretch, Secretariat, two and a half. Sham,
1: under a strong left-handed whip. And he's making his run now, but it's still Secretariat. Look how hard his on. jockey's beating Secretariat him. By two Secretariat's running easy.
3: There's a strong left-handed whip again by tinkai He goes to it time and time again. But Ronnie Turcott has his whip put away. And Secretariat has him put away. He's beginning to draw away. It is Secretariat. He's coming to the wire. He wins it by two and a half, almost Three.
1: That move around the first turn electrified the stands. Nobody had seen a horse pass very talented other horses that fast in that short a time. He compl- in in almost a, furling, he, a furlong, he passed everybody. It was, it was one of those, oh my gosh, moments. Um, but uh, unlike the previous uh, race, the, the official timer malfunctioned, and there's always been controversy about whether or not he beat the record. Um, uh, Several other credible authorities uh, caught him at a full second faster than the official time, and they've proven it by comparing uh, film footage with previous, uh, the previous record o- um, holder, Canyonero too. Um But we believe he set a track record unofficially. <laughs> most, most sports authorities uh, concede that he did. Now, the, f- the, the field has gotten quite a bit smaller, you might have noticed, and in the Belmont, which is next, which is three weeks later, um, there are only five horses. Sham is his great competitor. Sham was a wonderful horse, and any other year might have been a Triple Crown winner. Certainly, you know one of the greatest horses of his generation. Um, but uh, so this next race will be another duel between the two of them, and I'm sure you know how it comes out. But but it's sort of heartbreaking to watch because Sham really gave his all. Um, The other thing is that the Belmont is a mile and a half. It's very long. It's very grueling. Most three-year-olds have never run anything this long, and most will never run that long again. Um, And that's what makes the Triple Crown so special. Three races, five weeks apart, uh, demands incredible endurance training and different sorts of skills, speed and stamina.
3: We're ready to go this tremendous Belmont stay. Everybody's in line and they're off. Looks like the early lead goes to Mike Gallant. Yes, Mike Gallant going for the lead with twice the press on the outside. Secretary to weigh very well has good position on the rail and in fact is now going up with the leader. They're moving for the first turn. It is Secretariat. Sham on the outside is also moving along strongly. And now it's Sham. Sham and Secretariat are right together into the first turn. Mike Gallant has third behind them. Then it's Weiss-a-Prince, and the trailer is Private Smiles as they go by the turn. Those two together, Sham on the outside. Sham getting ahead in front as they move around the turn with Secretariat second. Then there's a large gap. Make it eight lengths back to Mike Gallant in third and Weiss-a-Prince fourth. And Private Smiles is still the trailer. They're and at the this point, the, the uh,
1: it's almost a match race now. teletimer the is showing such fast speeds that ahead. everybody's the going. This outside. is crazy. They're They've going too fast. Just the movie is right in this part. Who is third by Ed with fight to Prince fourth,
3: then it's another eight lengths back to Private Smiles, who is trailing the field. They continue down the back stretch. and that Secretariat not taking the lead. He's got it by about a length and a half. Still, Sham, 10 lengths back, My Gallant, twice a print. They're moving on the turn.
1: And They're right about here is where Sham's heart is broken.
3: Secretariat, it looks like he's opening. The lead is increasing. Make it three, three and a half. He's moving into the turn. Secretariat holding on to the large lead. Sham is second, and then it's a long way back to My Gallant and twice a print. They're on the turn, and Secretariat is blazing along the first three quarters of a mile in 109 and four fifths secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 lengths on the turn. Cham is dropping back. It looks like they'll catch him today as Mike Allen and Vice of Prince are both coming up to him now. But secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. Secretariat is in a position that that is impossible to catch. He's into the stretch. Secretariat leads his field by 18 lengths, and now Price of Prince has taken second, and Mike Ballard has moved back to third. There in the stretch, Secretariat has opened a 22 length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. An amazing, unbelievable performance by this miracle.
1: His time, 2.24, was not just a second or two faster, it was two, more than two seconds faster than the old record, and, uh, and of course, winning by 31 lengths, it's like winning the Masters by 12 strokes or something unbelievable. And, and people really could not use words very effectively right after this performance. They were crying. They were laughing. They were repeating themselves. They were babbling. It was just one of the sporting events that is the most amazing thing that anyone could ever hope to see in their entire lives. Um, uh, we have, um, we have a, a special story to tell you. Um, but uh, concerning uh, two f- two friends who are sitting here in the audience. Um, but before I, I st- tell that, I just want to preface uh, it with. Uh the fact that, of course, this was the 70s, the early 70s. It was a very difficult time in our country. As most of you know, it was uh, just after the end of the of the war in Vietnam, which was so divisive. And then it was right in the middle of the hearings on Watergate, which had started that summer, uh, in which our president was alleged to have done things that were inconceivable to most Americans. And, and there was a great divide between who believed him and who didn't. And it was a really tough time in our country. And so here's this beautiful, big red stallion who is wearing blue and white checks and was uh, just captured all of our hearts. And he, we, in writing the book, we have met so many people who have told us such amazing stories of how seeing him run or visiting him later at, in retirement at Claiborne Farm um, just made such a huge impact on them. And, and the story I'd like to tell you is of a, a young law student who was at University of Virginia and he had on his license plate the time, uh, he had the, the numbers, 15925 on his license plate. And, and, and that was a reflection of his devotion to secretariat. Um, and he had sworn to himself that he um, would marry the first woman who knew what that license plate was. <laughs> so, so he invites uh, a young woman out. And they'd, they'd had a couple of, of dates and, and enjoyed each other. And, um, One time they're going out to dinner, he shows her his car. He says, well, you have any idea what that license plate is? And of course, I'm paraphrasing, so correct me if I'm wrong. (laughs) Um, And and she said, well, you know, I believe that, Secretary. It's time in the Derby. (laughs) And the young man went pale. (laughs) So I would just like to to stand up, please. Bruce Smith and his wife, Laura Dowdy Smith, who have been married for how many years now? 17 years. Of course, Laura, I don't know if she told him that her father was involved in racing and, and that she had been sitting on her father's shoulders at the finish line in, in at least one of Secretariat's races, so she knew well what that number stood for. Um, but really, we, we have been blessed to speak with so many people who had such personal and deep feelings about the horse and memories of, of, his, of his running. He retired in, that same year to Claiborne Farm Granddaddy had died in, in January of 1973 before he ran the Triple Crown, and we had estate taxes of $11 million um, on his estate, which was far more than um, any, any, I mean, it was, it was 70% of the estate, so we had to sell the two most valuable parts of the estate in order to pay this tax burden, which was due in September of 73, so we had to syndicate Secretariat and River Ridge. In doing so, Mom negotiated to continue running him throughout his three-year-old year, um, and uh, but she had to retire him in the fall, which was a great loss. I think many people would have loved it if he had continued to race into his four-year-old year. Um, but he retired to Claiborne. He sired 637 offspring. He did not duplicate himself. Um, it would have been unreasonable to expect him to. He had some direct uh, champions as as his offspring, but mostly his daughters produced great champions, and that's because the very large heart that was discovered after in, at his autopsy is passed on the female chromosome, the X-linked chromosome. I mean, it was linked to the X chromosome. And therefore, his daughters inherited it. And they passed it on to their sons, who could give it to their daughters. So uh, it sort of turned breeding on its head when they discovered this, this uh, factor. And they've traced the large heart back, now that they understand about it, to man-of-war, to eclipse, to some of the great, great, great champions in the past. Um, Now I just want to show you a brief clip uh, that my brother put together of footage that um, uh, outtakes from a a commercial that was made very early on. And this is my um, brother's. um, uh, He added music to sort of imagine Secretariat's thoughts as he's running around his paddock in retirement at Claiborne. No. (laughs) We're going back to the very. Okay, I know how to do this. Okay. So, for all my big concern about making sure this thing was great, I I have (laughs) made it particularly. There we go. Sorry.
3: This crowd sees them. Just take a listen. Money's in line, and they're off. Looks like the early lead goes to Mike Allen.
1: Here
3: comes Secretariat. He's moving fast. And he's going to the outside. He's going for the lead. And it's right now he's looking for it. He's on the outside. And there he goes. There he goes. Secretariat on the outside. Heading around the turn. Secretariat. Secretariat holding it by a length and a half. Here comes Sham, second on the opposite. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 lengths on the turn. is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. Listen to the crowd. Listen. That is a record that may stand forever.
1: The last last thing I want to say is that that footage is private footage of moms, and you're the only ones outside of a small group in Colorado who's ever seen it. <laughs> but also, that's a, th- I know I've run late, but I just have to thank my mom because she provided her private collection of photographs for our book and supported us all the way. And she is very, very proud to, that this story is finally being told by our family. So thank you so much for your patience. With all my glitches, you've been a wonderful crowd.